in Him. Never forget that glorious truth. Now, today's going to be an interesting day because you get a double header today, all right? This is a twofer. I didn't get to finish my sermon last Sunday, though it went for a whole hour last week. You believe that? Uh, I looked at the video, and I said, I can't believe it was that long. Somebody said, yeah, Brother Tim, it was that long. Uh, uh, so I've got to finish up the sermon from last week, uh, and then I would like to go ahead and get the one that I scheduled for this weekend as well. In order to do that, you've got to listen quickly. I just went out and had another cup of coffee just for the service. I'm caffeined up. I'm ready to go. So uh, you listen quickly. We'll turn to the Word of God, Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 is where we're walking through Mark's gospel. And uh, we'll, we'll lead into where we left off last week, talking about the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark writes in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Referring to John the Baptist. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all uh, baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, we ended up last week by talking about uh, the fact that the baptism of John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet, the one that had been prophesied in the Old Testament in Isaiah and Malachi, that God would send to prepare the way for the coming of his son, the Messiah of Israel, that his baptism was different from the baptisms that were in effect under the Old Covenant. There was a, the ceremonial cleansing and baptizing for certain diseases like leprosy and some other things. But then primarily baptism, the immersion into water and coming out from the water, was uh, only used whenever Gentiles, Who's a Gentile? All people are divided into two groups. You're either Jewish or you're Gentile. If you're not Jewish, that means you are a Gentile. So the, the Jewish people were given the responsibility of carrying the message of God, of, of His salvation, to the other nations. And from time to time, Gentiles would hear this message of God and want to convert to Judaism. When they did, they had to do certain things like the men had to be circumcised. And they also would go through the process of baptism. And their baptism was a, an outward way of demonstrating they are putting behind them their old life, their old religions, their old beliefs, and now they have come up to live a new life following God in faith and being obedient to His Word. John the Baptist comes along, and now God has instructed him to baptize. But his baptism is a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins or the taking away of sins. 
not just the ceremonial cleansing, not just joining the Jewish faith, but calling not Gentiles primarily, but the Jewish people in Jerusalem and Judea and the surrounding areas to repent of their sin. The one thing we all have in common, we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is no righteousness whatsoever within us. God says, do these things. We don't do them. God says, do not do these things. That's what we do. All of us have sinned. John says, John the Baptist comes and says, you need to repent. Repent. Not just place your faith in God and offer the sacrifices. You need to repent of sin. And as an outward sign that you are repenting, turning away from your sin, no longer wanting to continue living this way, living in disobedience of God, but now turning from that sin, turning in obedience and righteousness toward God, saying, God, I want you to keep me from living that way anymore. So this outward demonstration of baptism is signifying that which you are doing in your heart of repenting. And what John the Baptist was saying to these Jewish people that were coming to be baptized, he was telling them, you need to understand in the eyes of God, you're no better than these Gentiles. Now, how did the Jewish people look upon Gentile people? They hated them. They're dogs. They're the scourge of the earth. They are alienated from God. They are not a part of the covenant of God that He's established with His people. So the Jewish people hated and despised the Gentile people. They saw them as kind of like the lowest of the low. And when John says, you need to come as Jews and be baptized as an outward sign of your repentance, he was saying, God's calling you to do the same thing He would do to those Gentiles that were turning to Him because you're no better than they are. There's no room for pride or arrogance in your life thinking that you are in any way, shape, or form better than those people before God. Now, we don't have any problems with that, do we? We don't think we're any better than anybody else, do we? Well, maybe we need to do some repenting. Well, that was the baptism of John the Baptist. Now, John was an unusual fellow for this day and time. We see that in verse 6. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair. Camel's hair is, is, is a very rough fabric. With, with camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And notice what he ate. He ate locusts and wild honey. Locusts and wild honey. Now, why is he dressed the way that he's dressed? Well, because he's preaching the way that he's preaching. Remember, he was filled with the Holy Spirit even from the time he was in his mother's womb. Just right the way the prophets had said. And then he's coming, but he's coming in the power of the Spirit, and he's coming in the spirit of another Old Testament prophet that had come before him. In fact, he's coming, if you remember what it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, when we looked in Luke 1 and dealt with Zacharias and Elizabeth and how John the Baptist was born, he told uh, Zacharias, 
He says, He will also go before Him, go before Christ, in the Spirit and the power of Elijah. That God had said He's going to send Elijah before the coming of the Messiah. John the Baptist is coming in the spirit of Elijah. And God had him dressed the way he did as an outward sign to the people of Israel. He's the one who's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. In 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 7, what did Elijah look like? Then he said to them, What kind of man was it who came up to meet you and told you these words? The king has sent someone to, to, uh, to talk to somebody. They've come back, given a report. And he says, What kind of man told you the things he just told you? So they answered him, a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And the king then replied, This is Elijah the Tishbite. Now when it says he's a hairy man, that's not just saying he's got this body hair all over. He was clothed in camel's hair, a very coarse tunic. And he had this leather belt around his waist. And guess what? Whenever John the Baptist comes, guess how he's dressed? Just like Elijah. Now, Elijah lived out in the wilderness. John the Baptist is living out in the wilderness. He had this wonderful diet of locusts and wild honey. Now, what does that mean? One of two things. Locusts. You know what a locust is? You think you do. Well, a locust can be something like a big grasshopper. Now, in this region of the world, in the Middle East, did you know that locusts are considered a delicacy? They're considered a delicacy. In fact, they are packed full of protein. So, for our church, next church supper, Brother Larry, uh, you can serve uh, one of uh, any variety of five or six different kinds of locusts. And we'll just be biblical about this thing. That's one dinner I am not coming to. All right? I, I just don't care how you do them. Uh, they used to you know, take the wings off and the legs off, and then they would grind them up, and then they would make something that looked like a crab cake, okay, or uh, a croquette. Uh, and they, you know, with some, with some flour and stuff, they would make it, and then they would eat it. No, no, no. Now, now, also, there's another possibility for what locusts are. We just went to Israel. While we were in Israel, our guide pointed out to us, he says, guys, I want you to know right there is, is locust." And I looked and said, where's this little grasshopper thing? And there's no, no grasshopper. There's just this tree with these little pods on it. And they were carob pods. You know what carob is? It's the thing that's kind of like the fake chocolate. Supposed to be more healthy or whatever. kind of tastes like chocolate. Well, the carob tree and the pods of the carob in that region of the world are called locust. Called locust fruit. Uh, and so it could be I would much prefer, so Brother Larry, if you want to serve that, I'm all for you, buddy, uh, but uh, not the other things. And then the wild honey. Now, whenever we see wild honey, we think of what creature? Bees. Well, that's not what this actually probably is referring to, because in Israel, there are just everywhere you go, there are palms, there are date trees everywhere, and they take those fresh dates and squeeze them, and they make what they refer to as wild honey. Wild honey. So the dates, that's where they get the honey. In fact, in the restaurants we went to, they would have honey. But most of the time, it was the honey from the dates, from the dates, because they're very, very plentiful uh, there in Israel. 
So either way, so he's got this nice, healthy diet of, of, of locust and wild honey. So let's see if anybody comes up with that diet. You know, they got the Mediterranean diet. Let's go with the John the Baptist diet. All right. So we got he's coming in the power and the spirit of Elijah. Now, in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 7, it says, And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. I want you to notice, John the Baptist was very bold in his preaching. He did not back down. And he's calling these Jewish people to repent and be baptized, telling them you're no better off than a Gentile. The Pharisees and Sadducees are going to come out there and they're going to ask to be baptized. We'll see that a little bit later. And he's going to say, you brood of vipers, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? I mean, he is a bold man, but he's very humble. You can be bold and humble at the same time. His preaching was bold. His attitude and his spirit was one of humility before God, before Christ. He says, I'm not worthy to stoop down and undo a sandal. Now that is significant. In this day and time, if a person had a servant, you could ask a servant to do anything you wanted them to do. Any kind of household chore, any kind of personal chore, you could ask a servant, the law said, you could ask a servant to do anything except one thing. You know what the one thing was that was too low to even ask a servant to do? To take off your shoes, take off your sandals, to undo your sandal strap. Even a servant, the lowest of the low of the household slaves, could not be compelled to unloose the sandal and take it off. And yet, John the Baptist says, there's one coming after me. And I am not even worthy. He said, I wouldn't even compare myself to the lowest of the slaves. I'm lower than them. Because compared to him, I am not worthy to get down and unloosen his sandal strap. He says, I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm immersing you into water, but he's going to immerse you into the person of the Holy Spirit of God, God himself. Mark 1, 9. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. You know, one of the other Gospels says, whenever John the Baptist saw Jesus, what did he declare? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of all the world. Now, John the Baptist was his cousin, but he wasn't going to look at Jesus in that earthly way. He saw Him as He really was. The Lamb of God, the One who had paid the price for all of our sin who would take away the sin of all the world. Now, his baptism was a baptism showing outward repentance. But he says, this is the one who's going to not just baptize for repentance, but take away, cleanse you of all sin once and for all. Now, the question I've always wondered about is, why was Jesus baptized? 
John's baptism was a repentance for sin. And yet, Jesus had no sin. If there's any one human being that's ever come into this world that did not need a baptism for repentance, it is Jesus. So why was he baptized? Good question, right? Let me give you a couple answers. In fact, I'll give you four of them. Number one, notice what it says in verse 15. But G, uh, well, uh, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now. Why? For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. Why was Jesus baptized? Why did John the Baptist submit and obeyed him and baptized him? Number one, to fulfill all righteousness. What in the world does that mean? God had called John as the last Old Covenant prophet. And he had instructed John to institute this baptism. That was the command of God as his last command under the Old Covenant. Jesus, the Scriptures tells us, perfectly fulfilled all of the law and commandments of God. In fact, the Scriptures tell us in Galatians chapter 4 that Jesus was born under the law. In Galatians 4, 4, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. In other words, Jesus was perfectly obedient to every instruction and command of God. He was born as a man under the law, under the old covenant. He had to perfectly obey every single instruction and command that God had given them under that old covenant. God had instructed the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, to institute baptism, and that all were to come and be baptized. So what did Jesus do? In perfect obedience to His Father, perfectly obeying every command of the Father, He went and was baptized. He says this is to fulfill all righteousness. He had to be perfectly obedient, perfectly righteous to every command of His Father, and so He was baptized. Number two. He was baptized to, to identify with us in our humanity. God was calling, I mean, and John the Baptist was calling people, human beings, to come, repent, and be baptized, to identify with us. Now, in our baptism, we are identifying with Him. As Christians, when we are baptized, we are saying, my life belongs to Christ. My, my life is linked to His life. In his baptism, since he was baptized following the command that God had given unto man, he was identifying with us, linking his life with us. Fully God, fully man, 
And he did what God required of man. Number three, he was baptized to authenticate the message and the ministry of John the Baptist. That John the Baptist was in fact the messenger of God. Because who was Jesus after all? He was fully man, but he also was fully God. Fully God. So he was authenticating and putting his stamp of approval on the ministry of John the Baptist, the message he was preaching, and the ministry of baptism that, that John was carrying out. Number four, Jesus was baptized as a picture of the future baptism that he would require as an outward witness of those who would place their faith and trust in him as Savior and Lord. Jesus would tell us that we needed to repent. He would also tell us we need to go out and baptize those who had repented. So as a foreshadowing of the baptism that he would require for those who were coming to faith in him, he was baptized himself by John the Baptist. So those are four reasons why Jesus was baptized. Now look at verse 9. And it came to the pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth to, uh, uh, to Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming up from the water, you know, baptism by immersion, we won't take much time to go there, he came up from the water. He just didn't sprinkle some water on him, just didn't pour some water on him. He went down into the water, and as he was coming up from the water, what happened? Coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting. The heavens were rent in two. There's going to be a day when the veil in the temple is rent in two. Right now, the heavens are rent in two. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, descending upon him like a dove. Now notice, the Holy Spirit did not descend as a dove. People, they have these pictures of a dove, and they say, that's the Holy Spirit. was. He was not a dove. It's just as he descended from the heavens, it was kind of like the motion and, uh, and all that he did was kind of like a dove gliding in the sky. Okay, But he did not come in the form like a bird. It just said that the way that as he descended and glided through the sky kind of reminded him of it's kind of like a, a dove flying in the air. But he was not a bird. Okay, So it says, there, uh, the voice from heaven, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Whenever you start talking about the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, this one incident blows my mind. Because every time I think I've got a good understanding of the Trinity, and I've got an explanation for the Trinity, how God can be three completely separate persons, and yet one, in essence and being, three yet one, one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, one. Whenever I think I can explain the Trinity, I look at this passage and I say, I don't have any understanding whatsoever of the Trinity. Because here's what you've got. You've got God the Son standing in the water. You've got God the Holy Spirit descending, kind of floating like a dove. And then you've got the voice of God the Father booming out from heaven. They're in three different places, three different beings saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And yet there is one God. 
Anyone care to explain that one to me? No. I have no problem with that. That tells me there's something about God that's greater than us and even greater than our understanding. And I'm glad I've got a God that is greater than any of us. This truth, I, you know, I can kind of have some kind of basic understanding of that I've kind of come to, but the reality is I accept it by faith. I just accept it because God, this is what God's Word says. So you've got, now here's the thing. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit all involved in the baptism of Jesus. I want you to understand God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all involved in your salvation. No one comes to the Son unless the Father draw him. No one can be saved apart from being born again of the Holy Spirit of God. And there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved except the person of Jesus. But I want you to understand, you got a perfect picture of Jesus as he's being baptized and now beginning his public ministry. And this, this, this turn of how he is going in the course of his life is a perfect picture of how the fullness of God, all of God is involved in the glorious salvation that he gives us in Christ Amen. in you and in me. Isn't that wonderful? The fullness of the Godhead was involved in your salvation. Isn't that glorious? Amen. Y'all wake up. All right, here we go. If you can't get excited about that, the altar's here. Y'all come in. I'm all I'm preaching. You get saved. All right. Now, so what does the Father say? This is my beloved Son. Now, you talk about identifying with someone and putting their seal of approval on someone. Jesus has just done that with John the Baptist, and now the Father is doing that with Jesus. This is my beloved Son, in whom I, because He has fulfilled all righteousness. He's been perfectly obedient to what God had said, God the Father said. He said, I'm fully pleased in Him. But what about us? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. Colossians 1.10. To those of us that know Jesus as our Savior and Lord, Paul writes and says, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, you might walk in righteousness, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work. Here's the point. What, what God the Father said about the Son, He ought to be able to say about us. Fully, He said, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. He should be able to look at you and say, this is my child whom I'm adopted into my family by grace in whom I am well pleased. What is the greatest? What should be the greatest desire of our heart when we see the Lord? Matthew 25, 23. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. The greatest witness and testimony, the greatest blessing God can give us is to say we're fully pleasing unto Him. Well done. Good and faithful servant. End Sermon 1. Beginning Sermon 2. Verse 12.
And immediately, now that is Mark's favorite word. He's going to use it more than 30 times in his little book. Immediately. He goes from one thing, next thing, next thing. It's hard to get bored reading Mark. He's always changing gears, always moving. Immediately, notice, the Spirit who just descended from heaven, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days. Tempted by Satan was with the wild beast. And the angels ministered to him. Now Mark writes in two verses a whole bunch of truth that some other gospel writers fill in for us. Now Mark is one of what's called the synoptic gospels. That means they are synonymous. It means they say the same thing. They deal with the same stories in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of the same events. They just write it from slightly different perspectives. Emphasizing different aspects of the nature of Christ. So Matthew. Matthew. There's one more thing I want to say about the baptism. Before I get there. Why is it Mark starts his gospel? He doesn't start telling us about the birth narratives of Jesus. He starts with the baptism. Why? Why does he start telling the story of Jesus with his baptism? Where did Mark get his information? From Peter. Remember? He was Peter's adopted son in the faith. Peter had a brother named Andrew. He had another couple of people that he hung out with a lot that were also fishermen like Peter and Andrew. They were James and John. Andrew and John were disciples of John the Baptist. So Andrew and John would have been there whenever Jesus came to be baptized. That's the first time they saw Him. First time they saw Him. The first thing the Scripture says that Andrew did after he encounters Jesus here at the baptism is to go run tell his brother Simon, Peter, we have found the Messiah. Where did you find Him? We were down there with John the Baptist and he was baptized and here's what happened. So since... Andrew was there, came and got Peter, told Peter. That was Peter's first time hearing about Jesus. And Peter is giving the information to Mark. The gospel starts with the baptism. Because that was the first story Peter had heard about Jesus. Makes sense, right? Pretty good the way it's the Holy Spirit through the inspiration of Scripture put all this together. I want to make sure you got that, all right? Mark chapter 1, verse 12, Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. There he was tempted 40 days, tempted by Satan with the wild beasts. Angels ministered him. Matthew writes and says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Sometimes when you get yourself in a bad spot, you say, God, where in the world are you? God, I feel all along. Sometimes you're exactly where God wants you to be. You're exactly. He's orchestrating things you don't understand. Even using Satan for his glory. How in the world is God using Satan in this? We'll get there. All right. He says, uh, 
Jesus was led up by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was physically... You fast 40 days and 40 nights? Physically, how are you going to be? Pretty weak. My daddy last night you know, kind of got a little dehydrated, started being delusional. All right? We had to get some more fluids in him. He was you know, thinking straight. Yeah, he fasted 40 days, 40 nights. And afterwards, he was hungry. Boy, is that an understatement in Scripture. I skip a meal. I am famished, you know? Uh, you know, I do a lot of snacking in between. Anybody else do any snacking between meals? The locusts and the wild honey, right? No. Yeah, yeah, no, he's, he's hungry. Satan will come oftentimes when it's your lowest point physically. He thinks because you're low physically, he can, he can get you through sickness, through disease, through just whatever. Paul writes and says, though the outward man is perishing, the inward man is renewed day by day. He might have been hungry, but he just spent 40 days in fellowship and union with his Father and fasting and praying. He is not weak. Outwardly, he's weak. Physically, he's strong. Now the tempter came to him and says, if you are the Son of God, question, did he know he was the Son of God? How did he know he was the Son of God? Because Lucifer was an angel that at one time, was, that's a whole other story, Isaiah and Ezekiel. One of these days we'll cover that one. Lucifer was an angel before the Lord given the responsibility for leading the other angels in worship and protecting the glory of God. That which he was supposed to protect, he desired for himself. God dealt with him. If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. No, you're hungry. There's some rocks there. Turn them into bread. Now God, Jesus, had sent manna to the children of Israel out of nothing. Can God make bread? Sure. Can He take the stones and make bread? Sure. We've heard this before. If you're hungry, there's some food right here. You can just take it, do it, and eat it. Where have we heard that before? Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God has made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said that you shall eat of every tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Step one. Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, he comes to Jesus and says, you know, you can take that thing there and make some really good bread. It's good. Go ahead and do it. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, where we usually put the focus is, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, he's quoting Deuteronomy. He's quoting Scripture. But what, how do we live? Where does life come from? Not from bread. 
physical bread, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How are you saved and received eternal life? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. How are you sanctified and grow in righteousness and holiness? Sanctify them by your, by the truth. Your Word is truth. What I want you to see is you can't be a Christian without hearing the Word, and you can't live as a Christian apart from hearing and obeying the Word of God. But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Matthew 4, 5. Then the devil took him into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, okay, you want to talk about Scripture? You just quoted Scripture? Let's talk Scripture. He's, now Satan is quoting Scripture. If you are the Son of God, he asked him again. Now remember I told you though, every time you see that word if in the New Testament, it's actually better understood as since. Since you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written. Oh, you want to talk about Scripture? Well, we'll talk about Did you know Satan knows Scripture better than anybody? He's been around a long time, folks. He was around before the garden. He knows the Word. And there's a lot of people out there that claim to be speaking on behalf of God, but they're not. They're just twisting the Word exactly like Satan is doing. For it is written, He shall give His angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Hmm. If you're the Son of God, go throw yourself down. Take Him up to the pinnacle of the temple. Bottom line, i got to sum this up. From the pinnacle of Solomon's porch to the bottom of the... It's right there on the edge of the Kidron Valley. I'll show you a picture one day. From the top of the pinnacle of the temple falls down to the bottom of the Kidron Valley. It's 450 feet. 450 feet. He says, Scripture says, He'll give His angels charge over you, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Go on up there. Here's the pinnacle of the temple. Throw yourself down. Let's see the angels come. First, He tempted him with His physical need. Now He's tempting him to do the spectacular because He's bringing into question God's protection. First, he brought into question God's provision. Now he's bringing into question the Father's protection. But also, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, if you remember that passage about Messiah coming and the forerunner, Malachi 3, 1, it says, when Messiah comes, He will come suddenly to His temple. So the Jewish people believe that when Messiah came, He would come and stand on the roof of the temple on Solomon's porch. So he says, if you want people to believe you're the Messiah, go to where they think you're going to come, jump down, and let the angels catch you. Oh, it'll be spectacular! Oh, they'll all follow you! He's appealing to his pride, but there is no pride in him. There is no pride in him. What does Jesus say? He says, It is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Eve, when she saw the tree was good for food and pleasant to the eyes. Let's see something spectacular. 
Let's see something good. Let's show off. Ah, don't tempt the Lord your God. Matthew 4, 8. Again, the devil took him to an exceedingly high mountain. I don't think this is a physical mountain because there's no mountain that meets this criteria. I think it's a spiritual thing. To exceedingly high, he's taking him in the spiritual places. And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I'll give you if you but fall down and worship me. All these things I'll give you if you fall. Now, number one, Jesus didn't dispute. They belonged to Satan. When man fell, Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world. Now, God oversees and is sovereign over all, but Satan is the ruler. In the garden, what was the temptation to Eve? You do this, you will be as God. I'll give you all this. You can do what you want. I'll give it to you. In other words, what Satan was saying, I'll give it to you without going through the Father's plans. I know one day you're supposed to inherit all this stuff, but in order to inherit, you've got to go to the cross. I'll give it to you without the cross. I'll, go, I'll give it to you without the suffering and the pain and the agony of the cross. Just fall down and worship. Just for a moment. That's what Lucifer wanted all along in the beginning. He wanted the worship that was reserved only for God. He says, I'll give them to you if you just worship me. How did Jesus respond? Away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship First, I want you to say, you shall worship. you got to, imperative, you got to do this. You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only will you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. What I want you to understand is, we have a high priest who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses because he was in all points tested like we are, and yet without sin. Also, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able. But with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Jesus overcame Satan with what? The Word of God. How do you overcome Satan whenever he tempts you? Same way, folks. The Word of God. It worked for Jesus. It's going to work for you. Also, James 4, 7 says, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Which is exactly what Jesus did. Last thing, and then I'll close. What I want you to also see in this passage, Mark, the first five chapters, is about the authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus over all things. We see so far His authority over Satan. His authority over His own flesh. His authority. Did you notice the passage says He went to the wilderness with a wild beast? The wild beast would normally tear somebody that was out there apart. They didn't bother Jesus. Why? He had authority over the wild beast. Remember the unbroken cult that he rode into Jerusalem on, that normally, wild, if somebody tried to he had authority over it. Here, he had authority over the wild beast. And finally, 
Jesus had authority over the angels. Who after Satan left, the angels came and ministered to him. So Brother Tim, what do we take away? Jesus, fully God, fully man, was tempted every way we can be tempted, yet without sin. He perfectly fulfilled all righteousness. He is the sinless Son of God. Why is that necessary and important? Because only a sinless man, fully man, fully God, can be an adequate substitute for us to bear our sin in His own sinless body, shed His sinless blood to die in our place. Here at the beginning of His public ministry, Jesus is proven whenever the Spirit takes Him out into the wilderness to be tempted over and over again by Satan himself. He is proven to be the sinless Son of God. The Father had declared, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then He allowed Him to be tempted by the very One who tempted man in the beginning. He did what Adam and Eve did not do. They were tempted and they sinned. He was tempted in the same way and yet without sin. But because He faced the temptation, He knows what it's like to be tempted like we are. So that when we face our temptation, He has promised when we turn to Him in His Word, He will make the way of escape so we don't have to yield to the temptation. Not because we are strong enough, but because He has won the victory. And He provides the way. There is no other Savior. There is no other sinless one except Jesus. Salvation is found in Him and Him alone. The good news is, the victory He won on our behalf, He also gives to us. Gives to us. And He says, when we're saved, not only does He cleanse us from our sin, He says, you no longer have to continue in it. But if you'll use My Word, resist the devil, and stand in Me, I promise you, I'll show you the way out. I'll show you the way out so they can walk in righteousness. That's good news, amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for...